Welcome to episode 7 of Women of the Military podcast. In today's episode, I interviewed Ashley Matesh McCoy. Ashley quickly ended up deploying to Afghanistan after graduating from college. The experience was life-altering, and when she came home, she seemed to have lost her cheerful demeanor. Through the help of counseling and time, she was able to overcome the challenges she faced through her deployment. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Are you about to face a deployment? Do you have questions about the deployment experience and don't know where to start? I know exactly how you feel and that's why I created a free guide to help you prepare for your deployment. Check out the free guide at www.airmentomom.com slash free resources. Ashley and I met at the Military Influencer Conference and I'm so glad we get to talk again today. Welcome Ashley. Thanks Amanda. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here virtually with you talking about our uh, shared military experience. Yeah, me too. Can you give us a brief introduction about yourself and your time in the military? Sure, I will try to be brief. That okay. is not, not one of my strong points. But uh, I was born in Montana. My parents were really young, got married very young, and then divorced. And my mom met a, an Army guy um, a couple years after that divorce. And he was doing ROTC at University of Montana at the time. And she ended up marrying him. She actually joined the National Guard there for a couple years. At that time, I guess you could just do it for a couple of years. Uh, so I come from an army family, um, moved around quite a bit with my stepdad, who was an uh, army ranger. Um, so grew up as an, basically as a military army brat. Um, when I was in Washington State going to high school, I was a good student, um, had, did a lot of great extracurricular activities, thought for sure I might be getting some scholarship money or something like that to go to school at University of Washington, but ended up getting nothing. So <laughs> my uh, mom and stepdad basically gave me the, you know, the alternative or the option, I guess, of they were getting ready to PCS to Dahlonega, Georgia. I could live with them and go to college there, or I could join the army to pay for my own college. And this was 2002. So it was right after 9-11, kind of we all knew full well that it was a possibility I'd get deployed. I never saw myself being in the military, um, except for a brief stint where I considered West Point. We had family friends who were there and I just thought it was a cool place. Um, but I wanted to go to school and become an architect and, you know, do all those artsy, fartsy things. <laughs> so I, I really did not want to move stay with my family in Georgia. That's probably a whole other podcast topic. <laughs> um, and I wanted to go to the school that I got into in Seattle. So this was May. So I went to the MEP station and luckily my stepdad really knew how to game the system, got me hooked up with a recruiter that helped me find a like a basic training and AIT situation that would allow me to get whatever bonuses, enlistment bonuses they had, um, get me in and out of training quickly enough to start school the following year. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess those were the two main requirements. So that's why I ended up enlisting as a chemical operations specialist in the Army. Um, so that was May. And then in June, after I graduated, about two days later, I went over to lovely Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, um, did my training 
got out, um, or didn't get out, came back, started school. And the other way my stepdad helped me game the system essentially was um, hooked me up with our, the ROTC department at University of Washington, where I got a guaranteed reserve forces duty scholarship. So I was able to use my GI Bill and that scholarship simultaneously while drilling with the National Guard unit. So it's kind of like getting all the money <laughs> so I could get through school. So you um, were doing the National Guard and ROTC at the same time? Yeah, and so the the Guaranteed Reserve Forces Duty Scholarship is basically um, you would owe the Reserve Forces, whoever you committed to, either Guard or Army Reserve, um, eight years after you commission. And while you do it, um, if you're in what's called the Simultaneous Membership Program, while you're in ROTC, you can also drill with whatever unit. So I basically went from like PFC in my chemical unit to cadet. I was drilling as a cadet on the weekends. So, I, you know, and it was cool because this was before the 9-11 GI Bill came out. So this was the old school Montgomery 1606 or whatever the version was. So um, I didn't quite have BAH, but like I had when I combined my scholarship from the ROTC department with the GI Bill, which was only a portion of it because I was a reservist, I was able to graduate college a few years later with, I think I had like a $500 student loan bill. So that was like nothing, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. And that's a really cool program. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think they still have it. Maybe it's evolved. I mean, obviously what was 2002, like, a hundred years ago, so I'm sure it's slightly that's different what, now. That's when I graduated high school, so. Is it? Okay, cool. Yeah. So you're just yeah. as old as me. Yep. <laughs> or young. Yeah, or young. exactly. <laughs> but we're getting older, yes. Yeah. So yeah, so while I was in ROTC, I, uh, I was really good at it. I actually ended up graduating number one in my class. I don't know why. I just figured out how to do, you know, play by the rules. Um, and I was able to get my first pick for the branch I wanted to join. That's how it worked in ROTC. You would put in your selection and then they would, you know, give it to you based on your merits, essentially. And I wanted to do military intelligence. And um, so I was able to join a military intelligence unit in the Guard. And um, after I graduated college in 2005, I went to my military intelligence training course in Fort Huachuca. And while I was there, my Guard unit was getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. Um, and uh, I thought I was going to miss the boat because they were already in Fort Sill doing their pre-mob training um, or mobilization training. I don't, I don't know if everybody uses the same terminology throughout the military, so. Oh, between like Air Force and the Navy and yeah. preparing to go overseas. Yeah, so for Guard units, a lot of times they'll send you, because we, we were from Washington, they'll send you to like another base to put you through all these like training exercises and stuff to make sure you're ready to go. So ours was at lovely Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Um, and they were like two months into the training by, out of their three months by the time I graduated. But um, my mentor sort of slash boss from that unit called me right before I graduated from my course and was like, we need another couple of people. Do you want to go? And I don't even remember if I consulted with anybody, but like my mom or my, you know, dad. <laughs> I was like, yeah, 
And then when I got off the phone, I was like, oh, I'm crazy. Um, so. <laughs> so when you commissioned, I just want to, you commissioned yeah. and then you are still, you still were in the guard. You didn't go on active duty. You were still attached to your guard unit. You just went to training for your school for the career field that you picked. Exactly. Yeah. I, um, I moved from a chemical unit in the National Guard to a military intelligence unit when I transitioned to become an MI officer. And then I had to do my lieutenant's basic MI course. Right. Um, so that's where I was when he called me. And so I graduated, gosh, I think it was like December 15th. And by December 26th, I was on a plane to Fort Sill, joining my unit to get ready to go. And we left for Afghanistan early February. I remember it distinctly because we were a plane full of Washington National Guard soldiers. So probably all Seahawks fans, that was the year the Seahawks played in the Super Bowl against the Steelers. And we were flying as the Super Bowl was happening. And we, we were like in Turkey refueling and they wouldn't let us get off because of some type of diplomatic thing. Right. And all we wanted was like an update on the game and nobody, <laughs> nobody would give us an update on the game. So it wasn't until we got to, um, Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan that we found out that we lost. So that was like, seriously, <laughs> that's horrible. I know like of all the things that could happen. No, I'm just joking. I thought but, um, that it was bad that when we went to Afghanistan, we went during the Olympics. So like we missed uh -huh. the whole winter Olympics. And then when we were in processing, it was like the closing ceremonies and they of made course. it. And we were like, I don't want to watch this. I didn't get to watch anything that was cool. Yeah. The closing mm -hmm. ceremony was not on the top of my list. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny how like there's those little inconveniences that you remember so mm -hmm. so um vividly but um but yeah so it's kind of funny like I don't know what your thoughts were when you like were going in but I had no concept other than my training which was you know I got into it because as as an ROTC person you have to learn all the infantry small right. tactics from like assaulting a bunker and like squad attack like all those still they're not silly but like when you're going through it it's not real so when we were flying in on a c-17 into bagram and they had it because right at the time it was um when that cartoonist from the netherlands had uh, drawn a picture of muhammad and it was very insulting to the islamic community and there were a lot of protests going on around bagram and so they were like we're getting ready for our descent into bagram and they're like put on your full battle rattle because there's protests and i'm just like picturing like hellfire and damnation when we land and so I'm just kind of like, okay, we're going to, but we get there and it's just like a normal flight line. Like there was nothing going on, but I have no concept of like what real, cause I've never been there, you know? So I just remember that distinctly in my mind, just thinking, you yes. know, what am I getting into type of thing? I remember, yeah, I, I also flew into Bagram and we didn't take off our gear. We were just crammed in like super tight mm -hmm. and I was like ready for it to be like crazy when we landed and it was like you said it was just a normal flight line <laughs> and then that night I kept hearing like gunfire or like they were doing like munitions testing or something I yeah they were 
was going in the middle of the night. But I was like waiting for the alarm to go off because <laughs> every night the alarm would go off and like we'd have to go for the bunkers and like nothing happened. And I was like, what? what's going on? So yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> I know. I wonder like how many people have that like because you just don't know until you're there what it's really like. Just that the thoughts that go through your head. When I deployed with the army, so I learned all the army stuff that that I didn't know before I was in the Air Force. So it was kind of like a weird experience. The first day I was in at Bagram, we were all out at, they called it Warrior 9 or District 9 or was that the movie? And the one girl, Um, it was Warrior and they called it District 9 and the lady was like, why are you out here? You're Air Force. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm deployed with the Army. So (laughs) it was a wake-up call. Yeah. Well... I think that we're all fighting together nowadays, so it's like, I don't know, I think it's great. We're all kind of experiencing what each other, I guess, kind of walking in each other's shoes a bit. With with my unit in Afghanistan, we were actually a joint task force. We were kind of a strange unit. We had, um, it was a battalion size, which is typically about 300 soldiers. We had Air Force, Navy, Army, we had active duty Army company, we had a National Guard company, um, we had some reservists, um, we had like a company from Washington State, we had a company from Wisconsin, the active duty was from Fort Hood. Um, we were sort of a strange company, so we all kind of worked together and that was really interesting. I can see that, yeah. We yeah. were a mix of active duty Army, active duty Air Force, and Guard. Mm-hmm. It was also like a hodgepodge mix of people. <laughs> yeah, well, it takes all kinds for the military to work, for mm-hmm. sure. But yeah, while I was there, I uh, I started off as the Battalion Human Resources Officer, or S1, and um I really didn't want to do that job. I mean, it was fine, but like I was super gung-ho and I was like, I want to be with the soldiers and, you know, get in the fight. You know, um, yeah, I was, you know, kind of making sure everybody's promotions and their evaluations and their pay and all that fun stuff was, which is important, but kind of funny enough, the boss who was like, do you want to go had dangled a carrot of being a platoon leader, which is what every young lieutenant wants to do. And then I get there and they're like, hello, you're the battalion S1. (laughs) I was like, this is not what I wanted to do, but that's the story of the army, right? Yep. So, but I did that for about four months and I was lucky to have a great team in my S1 shop and we got it running without me essentially. So I was like, do you got any other jobs that I can do? And uh, we had a really interesting company that was comprised of what used to be called, they don't do it in the army anymore, but tactical human teams. And it was um, it was our active duty company and it was an experimental type of organization at the time where there would be small teams of four to five people and it would be um, counterintelligence people, um, human intelligence people and an infantry soldier. And they were designed like that so they could operate autonomously collecting human intelligence, counterintelligence, um, with within the local populace it was more of a less of a I don't want to say aggressive but when you think of human intelligence a lot of people think of like interrogation operations well this was more like going out to the local populace and getting information in a less aggressive way like developing just, relationships right. and things like that so I, I became the or the company executive officer for that company and our soldiers were in about 20 different locations throughout Afghanistan And my primary job was basically to provide them logistics support. Um, You know, each location had about 
two or three Humvees. They had all their weapons. There was a lot of helicopter movement throughout Afghanistan because the roads are not very dependable. So I coordinated their travel and I got to go out and visit them on occasion. So I got to see the country and see what they were doing on their um, what we call source operations. And I would I have to say that was some of the best experiences in my life. It was just really amazing to be a part of that for a person my age and you know, it was sort of a new concept for the Army. So I felt very fortunate to be in that place at that time. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool experience. And you said you got to see a lot of Afghanistan. What do you remember about um, Afghanistan? Um, you know, I think what always sticks out in my head is the little girls. Um, because and it might be because I had, at the time, my little sisters were, I don't how old were they? They were probably like 10, 8 at the max, they were young. And so just seeing the little girls and knowing um, that their situation was probably not full of a lot of hope and just being kind of sad by that and, you know, wanting to help them and knowing that, you know, I could give them things like shoes, like I did a shoe drive and um, school things, but just thinking about the bigger picture in that country and knowing what the future is for girls in particular was kind of disheartening. Um, but otherwise, the country's beautiful. I mean, if there weren't landmines all over the place and major issues, um, it's geographically, it's a beautiful country and it's a very fascinating culture. I um, agree. Yeah. It yeah. Is. It's so beautiful. That's what we said when we landed in Bagram. We were like, this is like one of the most beautiful places in the world. You could mm -hmm. vacation here if it wasn't such a, a war zone. Yeah. I mean, and people used to vacation there and, you know, it used to be a thriving center of arts and progressiveness in the Islamic world, but um, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> That's yeah. probably like a series of a hundred podcasts talking about the complicated aspects of Afghanistan, right? <laughs> yeah. For my um, training, we had to take culture classes. So I learned so much about the culture and the history of Afghanistan. And I was completely blown away about these people and what they've gone through and the things that they've created with the art and all that stuff. And they like hid a bunch of stuff when the country was taken over and like hid it away because the Taliban was coming in and destroying all the art. Yeah, they hid it for years and years. And then like as the war went on and it started to get better, they actually like brought out these artifacts that had been hidden for years away in these people's like sock drawers or I don't know where they hid them. But it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like, it's crazy the beauty that's hidden amongst all the drama and stuff that goes on there. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's sad because you don't want to have people to have to hide those things. You want them to be able to celebrate it. And I don't know what the right answer is for Afghanistan because it's so complicated. Yes. Well, you <laughs> talked a little bit about doing a shoe drive. What did you do and what motivated you to do it? You talked a little bit about your sisters, but was there anything yeah. else? No, just um, noticing when it's cold out there, a lot of the kids, you know, if they had shoes, they were in sandals, you know, and it, it's, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Afghanistan, it's in, at least where we were, is high elevation. So it's it can snow there. It can be very cold. So um, just kind of ask some folks at home if they wanted to help to send, you know, gently used shoes for young kids to uh, 
to be able to keep their feet protected, essentially. So people would, you know, pack up the flat rate boxes and send me some shoes. And, you know, like, I know, I don't know if you guys did this, but we, we would also collect, like, my little sisters really wanted to give to the little girls because I would buy, like, little scars from the little girls and send them to my sisters. So they would get backpacks and school supplies and stuff. And I, whenever I'd go outside the wire, I'd give it to the I give it to the boys too, but for the, for the girls in particular, you know, I had a special place in my heart. Well, I'm sure it was a lot easier to find. I saw a lot of little boys and like a handful of little girls. Yeah. There were always boys around. And yeah, I was a part of a provincial reconstruction team and we would go out and they would bring food. And one of the guys on our team was collecting books and doing a lot more stuff. I didn't really think about doing anything. I don't, Looking back, that's like my biggest regret is that I kind of like just focused on the work that I was doing and not about what else I could do while I was there. Well, you know, I mean, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And there's so much going on over there. It's hard to, it wasn't even really my idea. I think somebody else in my unit was like, let's collect shoes. So I just, you know, and I was one of the people that actually went out fairly consistently. Okay. So I was able to hand out things when I could, but... I, I mean, I had, because I would send frequent emails to my family, just updating them, my family and friends, whoever wanted to follow me, just updating them on what I was up to. And I think people were very interested and keen on helping because you, you don't really know what you can do to help, you know? <laughs> so right. let's talk a little bit more about after your deployment. What did you stay in the guard? Were you on active guard or what did you do? Um, so yeah, I came back after technically it was a little bit more than 11 months and, um, I didn't have a job lined up. I was actually supposed to go to DLI, the Defense Language Institute to learn Chinese Mandarin because my guard unit was a linguist unit. Um, and that's a year and a half long course. I was supposed to do that after I graduated my MI class, but the deployment canceled that essentially. So I had no plans, but um, funny enough, I actually met my current husband on that deployment and we were friends and then we fell in love. So he he got stationed in Arizona to do his, he was MI as well. He was in another unit there, um, his MI training. And I was looking for work in Washington state and just not coming up with anything that was really what I felt like I was qualified to do. That's one of the challenges for guard people is when they come home from deployments, just getting back into the civilian workforce. And so I just took a leap of faith and I moved to Arizona, moved in with my then boyfriend, current husband, and found a job down there. I started teaching at the the course that I had just done um, as a contractor and uh, worked there for about a year before we moved up to Washington State together. We got married. And I continued basically doing guard stuff for a while, still trying to find work. Um, and then by the time we moved up there in 2008, it was the recession. So I did a lot of odd jobs. Like I was a bartender. I worked for my guard unit when I could on short-term contracts. Ended up commanding a guard unit for a while, which was really great. But I think it's typical story of the, the reserve component soldier at the time. Like it was just hard to get a job at this time. That makes a lot of sense. I know when I was overseas with some of the guardsmen, you can't lose your job, but you can lose your job while yeah. you're overseas. And so, cause there's loopholes and ways that they can get around. So he lost his job because he was a teacher and they were like, well, you don't have seniority and we're, we're firing all these people and you're 
one of the people because you don't have the seniority. And that was like something he knew when he came back from being gone for over a year that he was going to have to find a job. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's terrible, especially when you had a job, but like I had just basically done school and gone right to Afghanistan. So I had, and then I worked as a contractor doing a very specific thing, which I was trying to kind of work in the civilian world and nobody valued, it seemed like my military experience. It it didn't translate or I, I was not able to translate that on top of the fact that the recession had just started and nobody was hiring. So it was kind of a crappy time to be looking for work. But I mean, I don't know how far you want to go into this. I started dealing with depression issues at that time. Um, My husband was deployed twice during that period to Iraq. It was kind of a hard time, basically, between 2008 and 2011-ish for me, just trying to figure out who I was and what to do with my life and deal with depression for the first time. That sounds really interesting because I feel like when I left the Air Force and I went off active duty, I had like similar type of feelings where I was like struggling and I was becoming a stay-at-home mom, but like you went on this huge deployment and that probably like probably got a lot of your identity and like you learned so much and then you came back to the States and you were like, I have so much to give, but I can't. Yeah, the the identity thing is big because I I mean for for that deployment experience to be my first real I guess job as a young adult. I mean I had worked all throughout school as like a waitress for a long time, but sort of a real professional job and to go somewhere like Afghanistan and have this to me immense amount of responsibility and really build a lot of confidence in myself and my capabilities and go through some hard times and some really great times um, coming home. And even that first job I had as a contractor, I got good pay. You know, I, I was doing things for the military, but it didn't feel like enough. Like I felt like I was wake up, waking up every day and I was just like not doing enough. I felt like I was not in the fight anymore and it just felt meaningless. And so that kind of started off this whole like search for my purpose in life and you know nothing was going to be big enough. Nothing would ever compare to the amount of contribution I had made at that time in the military in Afghanistan. And so that was a rough period just dealing with that in general. I never ever thought of that, but I really relate to exactly what you're talking about because I really struggled with even coming home from Afghanistan. I never thought about that, about how I still was like, oh, when I was in Afghanistan, I was doing all these things and it was like helping people and changing people's lives. And then I came home and it's not the same thing. No, and it was sad because I didn't enjoy things here, you know, at home because I just felt like nothing was worth it. Like, I felt like everything was pointless because, you know, if anybody had a problem at work, say, I had this mentality like, well, nobody's going to die, you know, so you should stop whining type of thing. And like, I kind of looked at everything in very black and white terms like that. Like, you know, if I'm not, you know, doing this major earth shattering thing today, or if I'm not protecting someone from dying today or something, what's the point, you know? And so I had to really at some point figure out how to just be here and be happy and you know and that took years to be honest like I'm still working on that every day but you know for me and probably many people who are in the military we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and if we're not it feels less than so yeah 
Yeah, that you put that into words, something that I didn't even realize that was inside of me. So that's really something to think about and probably write about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been to a lot of counselors, so <laughs> that probably helps. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm. How do you feel the military affected you as a person? You know, people say, like my mom knew right away when I came home, I changed. I was definitely more serious. Like before I went, I was just always a jokester and, you know, joking around and singing. And immediately after I came back, I was like definitely confronting fear of death all the time. Like I would have, I mean, I had anxiety attacks, um, thinking about mortality. I, you know, there was an incident in, when I was deployed, I was not in like a, uh, troops in contact, we call it tick. I never had any type of thing happen to that me personally, but we lost a soldier and I guess I just, it profoundly affected me. Um, and I guess I'm just really sensitive. I don't know. But after I came back, I just took everything so seriously. Like I would, you know, snap at my mom and then I'd immediately be like, oh my God, what if she drives away and is dead? I have to go apologize to her because I can't let that be the last thing I say to her, you know? So I would just kind of freak out about stuff like that. And, um, you know, over time, like I said, with counseling and self-awareness and figuring things out, I am, you know, starting to get back to the real me or the true me where I can joke around a lot more and not be so worried about dying or the people I love dying all the time. Um, but that was definitely a big thing that I had to deal with. But, you know, on the other side, like I said earlier, being there and kind of forcing myself to do all these challenging things and putting myself out there and facing my fears and doing all these important things gave me so much confidence and, you know, really allowed me to prove to myself that I'm very capable and very dependable. I can rise to the challenge and you know, for a long time and even still so a little bit, I've always felt like I've had to prove myself to people and it's taken a while and I'm starting to come around to it, but I don't have to prove myself to anybody. I've already proven myself to myself. Like I know what I'm capable of when it, when push comes to shove. And that is definitely something that that experience in generally, in general, being in the military uh, from basic training to deployments taught me. That's really cool. I feel like I know why we connected so well at the influencer conference because I, so much of what you're saying resonates with me and I know it'll resonate with people who are listening. What would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? This is a tough one. I mean, in general, I tell people, girl or boy, know that there's a possibility you'll get deployed. I mean, people join and they're like, you know, doing it for the glory, doing it for the school money. And so, for some reason, like even in this day and age, they don't think they're going to get deployed. And so they try to get out of a deployment. <laughs> don't do that. You know, if you're not ready to just go over there and do what the purpose of the military is, don't join. But for women in particular, it's a cool time to be joining because of the changing rules around being able to fight in combat roles. And as many women who have come before you that weren't necessarily tagged as combat troops that have been in combat situations, you know, we know we're capable of it. We know we can handle it when we need to. It's a very cool time to join. I encourage people who are 
serious about service to their country and serious about you know the prospect of being deployed to join but also don't worry too much about forsaking or sacrificing your femininity you don't have to i know it's so hard we get into this point where we're like in the military and we like we said have to feel like we have to prove ourselves. And for women, a lot of times, and I'm guilty of it myself, we have to sort of masculinize ourselves in order to feel like we're respected or fit in. You don't have to do that. I'm not saying you should walk around with like 10 inch fingernails and lots of bling and makeup, but you don't have to become someone you're not to be successful. You can be you and you can still do it. And um, because if you try to be someone you're not, it's not sustainable and people see right through that. So those are my tips. I don't know if they're helpful, but I've thought about it and that's what I would say. I think they're great tips. And I think that one thing, the thing you let off with with being ready to deploy is that's one of my firm stances in the military. Like if you don't want to deploy, then you shouldn't be in the military. Like if you're going to try and get out of it or that was the one of the main reasons I left the military because when I had kids, I didn't want to deploy and I didn't want to leave my kids behind. And some people do do that, but that's the choice that they make and the decision that they make. And, but I didn't feel right if I had stayed in and then, got tasks and then you can't get out of it you have to go and so you don't want to be in the position to try to get out of it or say no it's just not yeah I'm, i'm exactly the same way it's been great having you on today i'm gonna put links to your business kinship vacations in the show notes so that people can find out more about what you do now and just so thankful that i had you on today Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.